for prayer, shall we? Lord, help us this morning as we spend time in this text uh, that we will understand and that your spirit will be at work in us, opening our eyes to see the truth and not just the data or the, or the facts of the story, but that your spirit will bear witness to our spirit and transform us and draw us close and, and bring us to worshiping you. So Lord, I pray you'll help us to see what you intended to communicate in this text and help us to grapple with it faithfully. In your name I pray, amen. So as we continue our study through the uh, book of Acts, and more specifically, the, what I would argue is the final story of the book of Acts that will conclude at the end of chapter 28. We are obviously in chapter 26 today. We're in the middle of this long story that started in chapter 21. And we've been working our way relatively quickly through 21 through 28. If you, if you noticed, we definitely picked up speed. Uh, a couple times we preached longer, more than one whole chapter at one, one, one message. That will not be the, cha- the case now. There is just too much in this storyline that we need to talk about uh, at this point. Uh, and so we're going to slow down and we're going to listen and hear uh, what's going on here. We're still going to cover a significant uh, uh, section of verses, but we're definitely not going to make it through chapter 26. And if I may be as open with you as I possibly can be, um, I was sharing with the music team this morning, I'm not sure where we're going to end up this morning because we'll have to see how far we get. And when we get to where we need to be, we'll end it at that point in time and pick it up from there next week. It's not my normal way of approaching a text, but that's what we're going to do this morning. So thank you, Tom, again for reading the text. We have Paul, again, as we've been seeing, Paul is in trouble, and he's been in, he's been in trouble for quite a while because he's been preaching the gospel. He's been transformed and is being transformed by the Holy Spirit. And uh, he is glorying in Christ, he's worshiping Christ, he's enthralled with Christ, and so as a result, he can't help but proclaim Christ. And that's what he does. We've seen it every step of the way, haven't we? From chapter 9, his conversion. In fact, I was just reviewing his conversion again this morning because there's some new details we see in this testimony of his conversion that we don't have in his conversion. We'll recognize those things this morning. But from the moment, if I may just look backwards for a second, chapter 9, from the time of Paul's conversion, remember, what was he doing when he was converted? He was heading to Damascus to kill, persecute, and to to wear down Christians by blaspheming and trying to convince them to blaspheme, as we see in the text today. And he's on his way on the road to Damascus, to the city of Damascus, a foreign city in Syria. Suddenly, about the middle of the day, a bright light shines out of heaven and and Jesus Christ speaks to him and he is gloriously saved. And what do we see at that point in time? Immediately you begin to see a transformation, don't you? It is interesting, if I may just put this out to the side, you don't see a transformation eight years later when when, when Paul dedicates his life to the Lord, do you? Or ten years later when finally he dedicates his life to the Lord. I'm using the terms that Christians use so often today. That's... An aside, but an important one. When he is saved on the road to Damascus, he is changed, isn't he? And it is dramatic because he goes from hating Jesus Christ to following what Christ tells him to do immediately. And he goes to Damascus. And after he receives his sight back, the Scriptures tell us, what does he do immediately next? Yeah, he goes to the synagogues and preaches in, in, in Damascus, doesn't he? And what does he preach? Does he preach that you've got to follow the law? Does he preach that, that, that the law is everything? 
that you'll be saved by keeping the law? Is that what he preaches? No, he preaches their absolute inability, doesn't he? They're unable to glorify God. They are condemned. And they need Christ. And the most amazing thing is he is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets and law, isn't he? That's what Paul preaches. Already. And he preaches to them what? Christ crucified, risen again, and imputed righteousness of Christ to sinful man. And of course, we know the storyline because the, the Jewish Christians who are there in the synagogues are terrified, aren't they? But then he, he goes back to Jerusalem. He spends three and a half years out in the wilderness. He preaches Christ and he continues to preach Christ. And next thing you know, he's doing what? He's traveling. And doing what? Preaching Christ. <laughs> and him crucified. Isn't he? Risen again. Coming again. Arisen and coming again. And imputed righteousness. It's kind of the theme of his ministry, isn't it? Does it ever waver? Does it ever change? No. It just continues. And he becomes more and more bold as the time goes on, doesn't he? Proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. Which brings us pretty late in his life. We're in the middle of this last story from 21 through 28 about that changes from his traveling and preaching and planting churches and all that that entails along with all the persecutions and trials and everything else, to being a prisoner. In the rest of the book of Acts, he will remain a prisoner. And he will be tried repeatedly. He already has been several times, has he not? Felix and Festus. And now he's in front of Agrippa. And Festus is there as well. And that's where we find ourselves in today's story. He's, he's being examined once again. We find already, as, as uh, Tom read, Right in verse 1, so Agrippa, Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul begins to speak. Now I want to remind you from last week, Agrippa is someone who was steeped from infanthood to the present day, Acts chapter 26. Was steeped in Jewish customs, Jewish law, Jewish belief systems. So he understands it all very, very well. He knows the law. He knows what the law declares. He knows what the teaching is. He knows it very well. His father knew it very well. His grandfather knew it very well. And that's where we find ourselves. So Agrippa says to Paul in verse 1, you have permission to speak for yourself. And I think I mentioned it last week, but it is kind of an odd statement in a trial that you just have free reign as the convicted person. But he does. Agrippa gives him free reign. And so it says at the end of verse 1, then Paul stretched out his hands and made his defense. It is interesting as we get into verses 2 and following the initial emphasis of his defense, it is interesting because if you remember, there's, there's charges against him, right? There's charges of sedition against the Roman Empire, isn't there? And then there's charges against the law and the prophets, right? And there's charges against the temple. Which one of the three is he going to focus on, do you think? He's only going to focus on one of them. He's only going to focus on the charge that he has gone against the law and prophets. 
That's the charge he focuses on. Why is that? Because he's already shown that he did not defile the temple, and he's already shown that he hasn't done anything before Festus and Felix both. He presented it very clearly. He did nothing to violate Roman law. So those are kind of mood issues. And so in this defense, he focuses in on the accusation, which is a religious accusation from a Roman perspective, the, the, the perspective that uh, he violated the law and prophets. He starts out his defense in verse 2. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. That's his initial statement. And it's because Agrippa does know these things. So he, he knows now, whereas before he was speaking to judges who were ignorant of these things, he's now before a judge who is deeply knowledgeable about these things. And so he knows that he can speak in a different way to them, to him. And so that's what he, exactly what he does. But he starts out in verse 4 and following with his testimony, doesn't he? It's exactly where he starts. Four and following is all about his testimony. His testimony first is pre-road to Damascus. We're going to be real quick on this. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. This is the first piece of information that we get about Saul, not Paul, but Saul. This is the first piece of information that we get in this storyline that's new. And what I mean by it, it's new in that for the first time we've been introduced to something here. In verse 4, again, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by who? All the Jews. You know what that means? It means Paul was famous. In Judah, Paul was famous. This, this guy Paul... Saul at that point in time is not a no-namer preacher somewhere or to be more accurate a no-namer Pharisee because there were a lot of Pharisees he is well known among all the Jews when he was young he goes on and says they have known for a long time if they're willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion I have lived as a Pharisee and he describes that more clearly in, in Philippians chapter 3 about how well and how carefully he followed the law. And it's interesting though in verse 5 that Paul mentions these people, these ones who are here, is what he's saying because they're there, these ones who are here bringing charges against me, they know my storyline. They know my history if they would be willing to testify, but implication what? They're not willing to. They're not willing to talk about what Paul, Saul, used to be. Why? Because once they start talking about what Saul used to be, then they got to start talking about why the dramatic transformation. Which is not what they want to be brought to the table. Because that's going to give Paul what? More opportunity to talk about Christ and the transforming power of if I may use a term, the imputation you talked about, Tom. Right? The power of, of Christ giving His righteousness to someone who's unrighteous. Of Christ standing in the place of the unrighteous one. Does that make sense? So they're not going to go there because it's just going to mean He's going to talk more about Jesus and about what Jesus accomplished on the cross. 
And they didn't have to think real hard before they realized if they open this door, what they're going to hear is another message that sounds very eerily similar to Peter's message in Acts chapter 2. And that's not what they want to hear. They want him to be condemned. And so verse 6 he says, and now I stand here on trial, and here's where we find out that Paul is narrowing the discussion or the defense down to one thing. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers in which our twelve tribes hope to attain, and they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. So he's narrowed it down to one thing and one thing only. Now this one thing he's talking about, though, is heavily backloaded for Paul. I want to remind you at this point in time there's no evidence that the Sadducees are here. The high priest and others of the council are here, but there's nothing said about Sadducees. It's like they kind of vanished off the scene once that controversy took place between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees started actually arguing that Paul was innocent. Some of them did. It's like all of a sudden the Sadducees disappear. And so now the, 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 the point at this point in time is that those who are accusing Paul are all people who would believe in the resurrection. Which is exactly what he's talking about. And now I stand here, verse 6 again, on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. And the promise was of a resurrection. But for Paul, he takes a much more finely tuned focus than just a generic resurrection. But he says, to which our, our 12 tribes hope to, uh, uh, to attain. They all hope to attain what? The resurrection. And how much did they hope to attain the resurrection? Well, Paul declares it here, as they earnestly worship day and night. They were consumed. It was the character of the Jew to be consumed with the ultimate resurrection and that they would be part of the resurrection. Now, they were consumed with it all the wrong ways because it wasn't about Jesus, it was about the the law. But still, they were after the resurrection. But I do want you to notice something before we get off, because we're probably going to return to it. If I remember to return to it, I want you to notice the uh, verse seven to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. So this is not some sort of casual hope. You recognize that for the Jew, this was not a casual hope, was it? This was not some sort of yeah, that'd be kind of cool if that worked out. Is it? That'd be really neat if there really is a resurrection. That'd be really exciting if we were part of it. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. What does it say? They earnestly what? They earnestly worship. And the idea is they worship God day and night because they hope to attain it. And their worship, of course, involves a lot of sacrifice and a lot of other things. A lot of cleaning, cleansing, ceremonial cleansings, and on and on and on. So you get the sense that this was like front and center for the Jews of Paul's day. The resurrection. 
The resurrection. The resurrection. Paul says, I'm just like them. I agree with them completely about this. But this is what I'm in trial here for. I agree with them completely in that I believe in a resurrection. They believe in a resurrection. I believe in a resurrection. They believe the Old Testament speaks about a resurrection. I believe in Old Test- the Old Testament speaks about the resurrection. They believe that the resurrection is a personal, real thing. I do as well. That's what he says. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. And he says to the king then, why is it thought incredible, and he's not just speaking to the king, but he's speaking to all these people, right? The Jews too. Why is it thought incredible by any of you? So he's speaking to Agrippa, his, his sister, and Festus, and everybody else in the room, the high priests and the elders that are there. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And that's where we first get in a hint, in this text anyway, that Paul's talking about something radically different. Because all the high priests, all the elders would have all agreed with Paul at this point in time, generically speaking, there is a resurrection. We hope for the resurrection. That is the, one of the major themes of our religion. And all the Old Testament prophets spoke of it. We agree with you. The problem is that all the high priests and the elders that were there and the rest of the Jews, for the most part, believed in a resurrection that was only what? Yes, that's true, but it's only future. Right? Because they're still alive. So it's only future. And what Paul is preaching is instead he's saying it is future. It absolutely is future. But it's based on one resurrection that is past. That's what his, that's what his storyline is. That's what his message always has been. I believe in the resurrection. You believe in the resurrection. Why do you find it incredible that I would believe the resurrection? And the obvious point is, they don't find it incredible that he believes in the resurrection. What they find incredible is that he believes in a past resurrection. One that has already happened. That's what they're charging him with. They cannot buy. They cannot accept this idea that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is past tense. Because to buy that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened, past tense, is to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the prophesied Redeemer, Messiah. And they cannot buy that. They cannot accept that. And Paul shifts from, from, he started out with, with his testimony, and then he talks about what the accusation is that present day, and then he shifts backwards again. Verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority, but from the chief priest, uh, I'm sorry, after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. That's new data, by the way. He was casting votes for their death. 
new data to us, not to them. Verse 11, And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. Another piece of new data. Did you pick that last one up? In this, at the same time, did he, was he involved in the death of, of Christians? Yes. Was he involved in the, in the persecution and imprisonment of Christians? Yes. New piece of data here. Tried to make them blaspheme. What does that mean? He was doing everything he could to try to get them to deny their Redeemer. Under great pressure, under great threat, under great um, uh, uh, danger, he would try to convince them to blaspheme. To say Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. To say Jesus Christ is not the coming Messiah or the Messiah that has been promised. And it only makes sense that he would be doing that. But here he declares that he did that all the time. And then what gets interesting, another piece of new data at the end of verse 11, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now the last part of that phrase is not new data, right? He persecuted them and even to foreign cities. But there's an important piece of data that he gives here. And that is in raging fury. We get the sense that before we see this text, we get the sense that he was pretty committed to it, right? I mean, to travel from Jerusalem to Damascus in that day takes a commitment. It's not like hopping on, uh, on the blue route and going somewhere, going, going down to Philly or someplace, going to the airport. That's eh, not what it's like. It's difficult travel. You have to be committed to it. It take days. Probably over a week to get there. By foot. But he, it says here in verse 11, he is in a raging fury. What does that mean? It is an ongoing, out-of-control fury. Unrelenting. You know what that means? For, for Saul, what that looked like, in other words, when he'd get up in the morning, where was his heart? Ready to kill Christians. Ready to persecute Christians. Ready to go try to get them to blaspheme. He woke up and didn't eat his cereal. Didn't think about eating cereal. He thought about Christians. And then after he, he would get up and think about destroying Christians, he would get dressed. And as he's getting dressed, you know what he'd be thinking about? Destroying Christians. And then he'd leave his house. And as he walked out of his house, you know why he walked out of his house? Looking for Christians. And I guarantee you, he's the guy who'd walk down the street, and if you walked past him, he'd, free, he'd, be, he'd be sizing you up. That's who Paul was. Saul was. He'd be sizing you up, and he'd be asking himself, I wonder if that guy's a Christian or not. Because they're here in Jerusalem. I wonder if he's a Christian. <laughs> I wonder if he's a Christian. He goes to the marketplace to buy some food and the people helping him, he's starting to wonder if they're Christians and he's looking around trying to come up with some ways to engage them to find out if they're a Christian or not. If you wonder what that looks like, by the way, today, think politics a little bit today. You know how people hate each other right now over politics? Right? 
There's some people who really hate people of another party on both sides. And what do they do? They go around looking to pick fights, don't they? Does that make sense? They walk around looking for ways to pick fights with people in opposition to them, right? Can I just submit to you, that's not Paul or Saul. Those people are angry, but most times when people come together over the politic thing, they both walk away, right? And nobody dies. Correct? And nobody's really even injured. Oh, they may be a little emotionally hurt. That's about it, right? Now, fold that concept. You have the picture, at least. Fold that into somebody like Saul. This is Saul. He's walking around every chance he gets, not just when he's got the script from, from the chief priest to go up to Damascus. It's the moment he wakes up to the moment he goes to bed, his focus is only one place. Where's the Christians? Where's the people of the way? They're here somewhere, and I'm going to do everything I can to find them because I'm going to destroy them. And you know why? It wasn't because he hated Christians. It's because he hated Christ. And because he hated Christ, he hated those who loved Christ. That shouldn't shock you, but I just want to remind you. He hated them because he hated Christ. He continues his story into verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. So now he's talking up to the point where he, he gets converted. At midday, verse 13, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen, all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, another new piece of data in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Can I just stop this? I know we talked about this back in, in Acts chapter 9, but it's a long time ago. So let's just, just review real quick. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's a really important statement. When Jesus says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? And of course, the, the strong... Uh, uh, dramatic statement is he, 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 he says Saul's name twice. So it's very exclusive, isn't it? There's other people there. But he's only speaking to Saul. Which, by the way, has something to say about God's sovereignty, doesn't it? That's just another aside. Saul, Saul! And by the way, according to the Scripture, the, those other people who were there didn't even understand anything that was said their minds were not able to process what Jesus said to Saul. They didn't understand it. They were not able to. But Saul was able to understand it, and Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Christians? Is that what he said? No. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Now, this is a really important statement. If I may just stop on it for a moment, this is a really important statement in the storyline both of Acts 9 and here, and in the greater story of the Scriptures as we understand who a Christian really is. When Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's because of what the Scriptures say about a Christian. A Christian's identity is Christ. Why? Because the Bible says we are not our own, but we've been bought with a price, right? So we don't belong to ourselves anymore. And ultimately, we never did, did we? Before you were saved, you were owned by... Satan, the evil one. Every single person since the fall has been in that category. And then Jesus rescues some, does He not? And those people move from an identification with Satan to an identification with God. Does that make sense? And more specifically, identification with Jesus. More specifically, if you could describe it this way, we were in the kingdom of darkness and Satan was our king, our master, our ruler, or as John says it, our father. And then, some were rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. And we have a new master, a new king, a new father, as it were. And then on top of that, John records what? That if we are saved, we have been grafted into the... Who's the vine? Christ is the vine... You, are, you and I are the branches who have been grafted in, correct? You and I are the branches who have been grafted in. What is a branch without the vine? Firewood. Right? It's dead. It's useless. It's only there to be burned. And of course, that picture is one who is burned in etern- for eternity. But... When I'm grafted into the vine, my identity is absolutely consumed with the vine. My identity is found in the vine. All that to be said, when Jesus says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? It is because if, you, if someone attacks the believer for their Christian beliefs, their beliefs in Christ, in this theme, beliefs in the resurrection, but the beliefs generically in Christ, it is not an attack on the believer. Oh, it feels like it, doesn't it? But it is an attack on who? Christ. It's an attack on the King. It's an attack on the vine, as it were. Now, in that day, that would make sense. Wouldn't it? Of course it would. And so Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Now this becomes really important because I just want to stop on it for a little bit longer. This is really an important concept that Paul is presenting in his testimony about how he came to faith in Christ that is fleshed out throughout his epistles. And that is this idea that if someone attacks you, they're not attacking you, they're attacking Christ. If they're warring against you, they're actually warring against Christ. Yet I find, if I may just be really pastoral here, I find oftentimes we as believers... We take it as personal, don't we? Don't we? Let me give you an example. I'll give you a couple of examples. Easy example. You, you share the gospel with someone at work and they go ballistic on you. They're screaming and yelling. They're all upset. They're fired up. They're angry. They're venting. They're hateful and hurtful. And maybe even they're undermining your, your position to the boss and your, and, and your good standing in the company, whatever the case may be. And you kind of naturally feel like this person is attacking me. Isn't it natural to think that way? It is natural. It's not supernatural. But it is natural to think that way. And that makes sense to us, doesn't it? Here's where it gets really bizarre, though. For most Christians, we do this. Well, if I share the gospel with them, they're going to reject me or what? Well, like you, they'll hate you. They'll reject you. Did you hear the common theme through every one of those? What's the word that shows up every time? Yeah, isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Interesting contrast, isn't it? We look at unbelievers and say, well, if I say something, they're going to, they may persecute me. It's not even real. It's just a theoretical they may. But from Jesus' perspective, the attack is where? And against who? Christ. Can I just stop on that for one more second and say, I wonder. I just wonder. How much more bold we'd be if we just get off of ourselves? I wonder how much more bold we'd be about Jesus if we'd recognize who we are in Jesus and recognize who Jesus is. I wonder how bold we'd be about Jesus if we'd stop being so bold about ourselves and repent and believe who Jesus says he is. wonder. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? If God is for us, what? Who can be against us? Do you realize the ramification of that verse in Romans? The the idea of the verse is if God is for you, no one ultimately is against you. Do you realize that? Because they're against you, they're against Christ. And if Christ is for you, ask yourself this question, is Christ greater than the one who is seemingly against you? Is He greater? How about if there's a whole host of people coming at you all at once? Is He greater? How about if the whole world hates you all at once? 
you somehow become the most famous Christian in the world. You walk out the door this afternoon and somehow there's ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, Fox News, and uh, um, Russia Times, and throw everybody else in there, and they're all standing outside. The whole parking lot is full of news reporters from all over the world, and they're just waiting for you. And you walk, they, you walk out there, and they walk up to you and say, do you believe in Jesus? And is He your Redeemer? And do you believe what the Bible says about Jesus? And you say, yes, I do. And it spreads instantly all across the world. And everywhere you go, you're the most famous person this world has ever, ever known. And everywhere you go, the unsaved people hate you. You walk into Wawa and there's 60 people in there. And suddenly there's one or two people cowering in a corner that you suspect are probably Christians. At least claim to be. And the other 30-some people just turn, they see you, and the rage is there. Like Saul. Is Christ bigger? Is Christ greater? Is He? You haven't even said a word yet. But everybody hates you. Is Christ greater? The answer is yes, because when those 38 people, or however many there are, come after you, according to Christ, they're not coming after you. Do you realize that? They're coming after Him. Oh, you'll pay a price, won't you? You'll pay a price. Does Paul talk about that price? He says you're, you'll be making up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. <laughs> That's what he says. That's exactly what he says. And does, doesn't Paul talk about what an honor and privilege it is to suffer for his namesake? Doesn't he talk about that? Kind of repeatedly? He does, doesn't he? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We say we believe in Christ. It's really easy to say that, isn't it? It's really easy. But what's challenging about this is, let me say this and then we're going to move on. Is that the Christ we really talk about when we say we love Jesus? Just the little bit I just described. Is that the Jesus we really believe in? Is it really? And the reason why I ask the question is, is because, and here's, here's the continuing question, if that is the Christ we believe in, because we know in the Scriptures one of the common themes is people believe in God, but they create ultimately a different God, Right? If the Christ we say we believe in is the Christ as displayed here and elsewhere throughout the Scriptures, do you think maybe we'd find ourselves talking about Jesus? 
that we saw ourselves in light of being grafted in? In light of the one who's promised never to leave us nor forsake us? And the ramifications of that are pretty rich in what we're talking about right now, isn't it? You think we'd be, be someone like we are or somebody different? And the reason why I ask the question is because I think it's really easy to say, I, I believe in, I love Jesus. I think it's really easy to say that. But then when I look at people in the scriptures that say they love Jesus, and I look for them and I see Stephen standing up. And I see Paul standing up. And I see Titus and Timothy and Luke. And later, John Mark. And Onesimus. And we go on and on, right? And I'm concerned when I look around at the non-persecuted church world, I'm being really generic, it concerns me because you know what I see more of? Than people that kind of look like this. I see a lot more Demases. I do. I see a lot more Galatians. I see a whole lot more Corinthians. And I know we're all in a, in a process of being sanctified and growing and maturing. but I see a whole lot more of Church of Asia. I see a whole lot more of 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. And too often I see a whole lot more of that in me. I just don't want to talk about other people. I think ultimately... That's because we don't recognize who Christ is and what he's done. Now I say that, if I may now fold that statement back to a previous passage. <clears throat> Starting in verse 6, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. Even for, it's really interesting. Even for these unsaved Jews, even for the... So you want to go back and see what that is? Thank you, Reagan. We'll continue. I could talk over that. If I could talk over a baby, I could talk over that. Way to go, Reagan. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> Even for these unsaved Jews, what were they doing day and night? Yes, but in, in, the text that, in, the, in, in this text itself, what were they doing day and night? They were worshiping. Is that what it says? Let me read it again. 
to which our, verse 7, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. Now, they did it wrong, right? They were after it wrongly because they were rejecting Jesus, but they believed in the resurrection and they were after it, after it, after it. The evidence that they really believed in it was what? They're working hard at it. They're after this attaining of the resurrection. Day and night. Worshiping. How much more do you think for people who have been grafted into the vine would you expect? Just a question. How much more more would you expect that people who are grafted into the true vine who have received the grace of God to be saved, who the Spirit has moved into, how much more do you expect that it would, or let me see, let me change, how much more do you think it should be expected that the Spirit would cause those who are grafted in to also be summed up in a description day and night worshiping? I wonder if the evil one could cause someone to wrongly worship day and night. Right? If the evil one could bring these people to worship day and night, seeking to obtain a resurrection and to obtain it wrongly, how much more do you think the Holy Spirit who has come to live within us should be expected to do what? Draw us to do what? Worship. Worship what? The triune God how often? Day and night. Shouldn't we expect that? I mean, can I just ask you a quick question? Real simple, easy question. Who's more powerful? Who's greater? The evil one or God? Easy question. If you get that one wrong, we need to talk. God is greater. Is the Holy Spirit part of the triune God? Yes, He is. Should we not expect the power of the Holy Spirit within to move greater than the evil one within for an unsaved person? Should, we not, should that not be expected? It should be. Do we see evidence of that in the Scriptures? Do we see evidence of transformation like we're describing here in the Scriptures? Yes, we do. We absolutely do. Repeatedly. Do we see evidence of that, generally speaking, in the Christian world today? I would say not as much as I would expect. I'm sorry? Maybe more overseas. You're probably right in that case. The persecuted, that's why I made that distinction between persecuted and non-persecuted. I'm not saying that persecution is the only thing bringing that out because if we're 
believers, what's going to, true believers who are glorifying God because we're viewing ourselves as being in Christ. And if anything bad comes to us, it is being, actually being focused on who? Christ. Right? And that Christ who it's focused on has told us something else, by the way. God causes all things what? To work together for good. For who? For those who love God who are called according to His purpose. Right? You meant, Genesis 50, you meant these things for evil, but God meant them for good. Right? As long as we find good from God's perspective. Correct. God downward, not us upward. Absolutely. And so as a result of that, the persecution doesn't bring godliness. It does, but it doesn't start the process. The Holy Spirit uses those things, right? But godliness is already there. There's no reason to persecute if there's no godliness there. If Paul was waffling all over the maps here, would he get persecuted? If Paul merely went from, if I may just create the scenario, if Paul merely went from, now follow me on this, if he merely went from persecuting, killing, trying to get them to blaspheme believers and imprisoning believers to retirement from that, would he have been persecuted? What would be there to persecute? He just retired. Right? If he had just retired from the persecution and all the rest of that, you know, ah, has this Damascus Road experience. He repents and believes and decides he's not going to persecute Christians anymore. He's just going to quietly go to church on Sundays and worship. Would he get persecuted? No. Sounds like a, what's happening a lot in the church, isn't it? Sounds really familiar, actually, doesn't it? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, ultimately, this isn't about Saul or Paul, is it? This is about Jesus and our perspective on Jesus. It's really easy to say, isn't it? It's very easy to say, I believe in Jesus. That's easy. It gets a little more challenging when the question is, Okay, you believe in Jesus. What do you believe about Jesus? That gets a little more complex, doesn't it? It gets more complex when you start moving from you believe in Jesus to what do you believe about Jesus to how does that transform you? Now it gets really complicated, doesn't it? If we weren't stuttering on the second question, the vast majority of people who claim to be Christians today are going to turn into mutes on the third one. And we all know it, don't we? Which tells me that we really don't believe Jesus rightly. That's what it tells me. Say we do. But when the rubber meets the road, do we really? These are challenging things. I was going to go beyond this statement, I'm not. I, actually, my plan was not to end here. 
This is going to be the, the launching off point to the rest of it. We're going to have to hold off on the rest of it later. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Remember when we were in the book of Mark? What was the questions, the two questions we asked over and over and over again? Number one was what? Who is this Christ? And number two, why is He so worthy of my worship? I hope I never stop asking myself and asking all of us those two questions. Who is this Christ? that didn't just stand in my place when I was saved, right? Or at the cross. But according to this, he's standing in my place now, isn't he? You, you do sense that, don't you, in the, in the text? He didn't just stand in my place once. As a result of standing in my place once, he's standing in my place now, isn't he? Who is this Christ? that Paul has been proclaiming. Who is this God-man? And why is He so worthy of my worship? And I would add one more question in. Does my worship of Him reflect His worthiness? Does it? Could I just close on, on one statement and we're going to go back to singing after a prayer. And that is simply summed up. When was the last time we repented of the stuff we're talking about this morning? You know, I'm all about, well, I say this all the time, <clears throat> when, when, when we're in the Scriptures and we're studying the Scriptures, it's always going to be painful. I hope I never preach a message that isn't painful. Because I believe I will do a disservice to the Scriptures and to God if I do. It's got to be painful. Even if we're talking about the most glorious text in, in all the Scriptures, it's got to be painful. Because when I look at the Holy One, one of the things that also pop off the page is what? Yeah, that's right. I'm not Him. Right? That's Him. That's not me. And that should draw me to repentance. And then it should draw me to praise and rejoicing because I know that I'm forgiven, right? Do I know it? If we confess our sins, what? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that should draw us to what? After repentance, it should draw us to what? Worship that is rejoicing worship. Shouldn't it? Shouldn't it? <clears throat> saying about this morning depth of mercy can there be mercy still reserved for me can my God his wrath forbear me the chief of sinners spare I have long withstood his grace Long provoked him to his face, would not hearken to his calls, grieved him by a thousand falls. 
I have spilt His precious blood, trampled on the Son of God, filled with pains unspeakable, I who yet what? Am not in hell. I, my Master, have denied. I afresh have crucified. And profaned His hallowed name, put Him to an open shame. Jesus speaks and pleads His blood. He disarms the wrath of God. Amen? Now, my Father's mercies move. Justice lingers into love. There for me the Savior stands, shows His wounds and spreads His hands. God is love. I know I feel Jesus weeps and loves me still. Pity from thine eye let fall by a look my soul recall. Now the stone to flesh convert, cast a look and break my heart. That's what you sang this morning already. And you cry out to God to break your heart. That's what you did. Last, end of last verse. Now incline my heart to repent. Let me now my sin lament. Now my foul revolt deplore. There's repentance, isn't it? Weep, believe, and sin no more. Now, I got to tell you, whenever we enter into the Holy One's presence, we should be undone. It should be painful. It should be grievous. And in repentance... We are recipients of God's mercy. We are restored. And that should result in what? Great worshipful praise, should it not? Shouldn't it? Should that be expected? My, my God died for me. And yet, even this morning I sinned against Him. Once again, I come to him and I cry out for repentance and he swiftly forgives, does he not? And my tears are wiped away because I am forgiven. And I find myself, as the scriptures record, with hinds feet jumping along in the high places. If that's not a picture of praise, I don't know what is. as we rejoice in Him. And would we not expect in repentance and in restoration to find ourselves proclaiming the One who cleansed us, rescued us, forgave us, and shed His blood? Should we not? Let us come to sing together in repentance and praise the God who yet, yet loves us. Shall we? Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us because we are so man-centered, we are so self-consumed, we are so <clears throat> believing too often a God we create in our own minds, a God that is comfortable, it's safe, and He can be kept on a shelf only to be pulled out when the need be. But that is not you. 
You are not safe. You are a lion. And you are a jealous God. And you will not share your glory with another. And so Lord, help us this morning as we continue in worship that we will be reminded of you and that in repentance we will be drawn close to you, being forgiven and restored. And then help us to go from here refreshed and enjoying you. The God who loves, redeems, and is returning for his own. So glorify yourself in our little midst. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we?